Today's reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt in themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. As Carrie shared last week, in this first six weeks of the fall, we are going to be preaching the big picture. The overview of the Christian faith that we worked through with the confirmation class, and we'll be going through it this fall. Last week, Carrie preached on creation. This week, I get to preach on sin. Last week, Carrie could talk about the unspeakable awesomeness of God, the marvels of the universe, the wonders of the Grand Canyon, the miracle of human life. This week, I get to talk about sin. But sin may be more interesting than you think because we often get it wrong when it comes to sin in the same way we often get it wrong when it comes to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve. Here then, again, these words, these familiar words from Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Notice it never says the serpent is the devil. The serpent said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed the fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
Holy God, as we grapple with Your Word, as we hear these human words, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, Your Holy Word might be heard, but not only heard, but also followed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some movies, whether made in Hollywood or elsewhere, are explicitly Christian movies. They can be good, but I find myself, I don't know about you, a little bit more fascinated with movies that have no such agenda, but which illustrate Christian themes anyway. Often, perhaps, without the realization of the writer or the director. In the movie that came out a number of years ago, Grand Canyon, Danny Glover is a tow truck driver who is threatened by a carload of gang members in Los Angeles as he attempts to rescue a lost and terrified motorist, Steve Martin, if you saw it, stranded in a very expensive car in a very tough neighborhood. Glover says to the gang, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than it is here. God's creation indeed is not what it is supposed to be. We know that, don't we? When we have heard so many stories of mass shootings that we start to lose track of them. When we hear of yet another person we know or someone else knows battling an opioid addiction. Or hear yet another alarming story about rising temperatures or a shrinking polar ice cap. When we see growing inequities in society and hear about oil refinery executives who manage to take out millions of bonuses while the employees who do the dirty and dangerous work day to day get not one penny of severance pay. We don't have to be convinced when we hear all that. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. In the catechism that we go through during the year with a confirmand, a portion of which we will read as the affirmation of faith later, We are asked, what does it mean that we are made in God's image? The answer, it means we are made to reflect God's goodness, wisdom, and love. And then the next question asks, why then do we human beings often act in destructive and hateful ways? Because we have turned away from God and fallen into sin. Today's reading from Genesis 3 illustrates these two questions and answers. As Carrie mentioned last week, Genesis gives us two different accounts for creation. There's the more poetic account from Genesis 1 to the very beginning of chapter 2, and then there's the almost story-like narrative that begins in chapter 2 and goes through chapter 3 and beyond with Adam and Eve. They're very different from each other. Read them sometime side by side. They even are different in the order of creation, but they're united in these important respects. Neither account really tries to answer the questions of when and how when it comes to creation. Those questions are best left to science. 
Instead, the biblical creation accounts are concerned with the theological questions of why, and most importantly, who. Adam and Eve, you see, are not meant to just be historical figures back at the beginning of creation. Like Jesus, Pharisee, and tax collector in the passage that Brent read, they're intended to illustrate the human condition, not just at creation, but throughout all of creation. They are man with a capital M. In fact, that is what Adam means in Hebrew, man, and woman with a capital W. To borrow from the old comic strip line, we've met Adam and Eve, and they are us. Notice how they have everything they need. They are literally living in paradise. But instead of giving thanks for all that they have, they yearn for that one thing that God has said they could not have and should not have. And then there's the voice of the serpent. Think of the serpent's voice as perhaps the ads we hear and are bombarded with day by day or the words of friends or business associates, or that little voice inside, any of the things that say, forget about God, do what you want, you deserve it. And so Adam and Eve, like too often us, eat from the only tree they are to leave alone. And then what happens? They hide, as if we could hide from God. They lie and blame others. Genesis 3 sounds like a gang of criminals put on trial or a bunch of children brought before a parent in front of a broken vase, blaming each other. Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. And finally, in the passage right beyond the one I read today, there are the consequences to sin. Separation. Separation of humans from God and from the garden. Separation of humans from the rest of creation separation even among humans. The American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once wrote that sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. In other words, you don't have to be a believing Christian to believe in sin. There's just too much evidence for it. But it is in moving from the general to the specific that can be tricky. If sin is a disease, do I have it? Consider Jesus' parable again. <coughs> Are we like the Pharisee, looking around, comparing ourselves to others, judging ourselves to be pretty good, at least when compared to them, whoever them may be? Or do we find ourselves identifying with the tax collector, beating ourselves up and thinking that we are such a dreadful sinner that we are beyond God's mercy? Or do we find ourselves as some combination of the two? To answer those questions, we need to understand what sin is and what it's not. First, sin is not a measure of how we compare to others. When it comes to sin, the only comparison we're ever called to make is not between us and others. Instead, it is between the way we actually are and the way that God made us. The way we would be if we were truly reflecting the image of God, if we were truly reflecting God's goodness 
wisdom, and love. In addition, people often think of sin as great acts of rebellion, like committing a crime, hurting people, lying, cheating, stealing. More often than not, our sins are not big and dramatic. Instead, they are far more ordinary. Often our sins are a matter of being less, doing less than God intended us to be and do. But small actions, careless words and attitudes can hurt others. We all know too well. David Johnson is a lawyer and a long-time businessman, and at least as a few years ago, serving as a CEO of a public-private partnership in Indiana. He is also the son of a Presbyterian minister. He writes about a conversation in a carpool to school when he was a teen that happened when his father was driving. It was a lesson he never forgot. He writes, I remember with shame to this day the shabby way I treated a kid named Jack who had what would, then be, what would now be called a learning disability. We were friends of sorts when I found friendship convenient. But whenever someone else came along that I thought, thought might be more cool, my closeness to Jack became a source of embarrassment for me. And in the insecurity of being a teenager, I went out of my way to make fun of him or slight him to my supposed advantage. One of those occasions was on the way to school with my father driving. I teased Jack about the crush he had on a girl, one that he had confided to me. I went to great lengths, he writes, to describe not only Jack's inner longings, but also the hopelessness of the situation. Because she was so far above him. When the car got to school, Johnson's father asked him to remain behind. This is what he said to him. What you are doing to that boy is wrong. It is hurtful to him, and it's beneath you to treat him or anybody like that. I don't want you to be this way. In fact, I don't want to see you ever again be that kind of person. This is sin. Acting like that kind of person, rather than the person we were created by God to be, the person that deep down we want to be. We do that not just with acts of commission, where we actually do something. We also do it when we, with acts of omission, that is when we fail to do something when we fail to listen well or be patient or show kindness or treat others somehow in the way we want to be treated. In a nutshell, as we say with the confirmands, when we fail to reflect God's goodness, wisdom, and love, the faults may be little, but they can add up. They can become bad habits, our default setting, so to speak. We also often think of sin as a matter of breaking rules. And deep down, aren't some rules meant to be broken, we think? But in the Bible, sin is more about breaking relationships. And God does nev never intends for relationships to be broken. Dorothy Butler Bass makes a good point when she says that our lack of compassion for others is at the root of all sin when you think about it. 
compassion for others, seeing them as they truly are and caring for them, this is what Jesus preaches and what Jesus embodies. This is why Jesus so often attacks religious leaders when he's out preaching words that we should take to heart. Listen again to the Pharisee, because what Jesus is criticizing is his lack of compassion for others. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like others, like the thieves and the rogues and the adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. Compare that with Jesus' words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Compassion. Our lack of it hurts not only our family and friends, it also hurts society as well. As Mother Teresa once said, it is our lack of compassion for others, our failure to see our kinship with others. It is the root of nearly all of the problems that our society faces. We talk about us and them rather than just us. We let ourselves be divided by political party or country of birth or economic class or some other artificial and human-made dividing line. But we are all children of God, made in God's image, loved by God. And we are all called to love all as God does. Too often we are indifferent to social forces like racism or injustice if they only affect others and not ourselves. Say, I don't do that. As the British statement Edmund Burke said, though, two centuries ago, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men we would add women to do nothing. Whether participant or bystander, we all bear some responsibility that the world is not the way it is supposed to be. Whether we're talking about human relationships or society or even the environment. That is why we sometimes acknowledge in our prayers of confession that my life and the life of the world are broken by my sin. And that is why G.K. Chesterton spoke truth with humor when he sent a letter to the editor of a London paper about a century ago. The London paper had run a headline, What's wrong with the world? Chesterton's letter to the editor read, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Sin. My sin. Your sin, our sin, separates us from others, separates us from creation, separates us even from God. But even here, we get it wrong. You see, it's not that God withdraws from us when we sin. It is that like Adam and Eve, we're in hiding and we cannot see God because we have turned away from God, like the tax collector who thinks that what he has done or not done has rendered him persona non gratis to God. There are many people today, most of whom are not here, who carry a heavy weight of guilt, but indeed some are, who beat themselves down and feel like they are too unworthy to be loved by God. 
in the movie Rocky. If you may remember, Adrian, Rocky's girlfriend, asked him at one point why it's so important for him to go the distance with a heavyweight champion of the world who is just so much greater boxer. Do you remember Rocky's answer? Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Friends, in God's eyes, we are sinners. But we are never bums, whether we go the distance or not, because God always goes the distance with us and for us. Here's how the Catechism puts it. How does God deal with us as sinners? God hates our sin, but God never stops loving us. As we see in the biblical story that unfolds across the Old and New Testaments, as we will explore in the next few Sundays, God keeps reaching out to God's people through covenants and the Ten Commandments, through the prophets, and finally through Jesus Christ. Despite our sins, God never stops loving us. God never has arms crossed to end it all. Instead, God always has arms outstretched to welcome us back. God even thinks we are worth dying for while we are yet sinners. I am a sinner. That is the diagnosis. That is the first step. Because we cannot be healed until we recognize that we are sick and that we have a problem. But that next step is a matter of God's doing, not ours. We do not carry the antidote. Only God does. Only God can heal us and give us a fresh start. And there is nothing that God wants to do more than that so that we can reflect God's goodness, wisdom, and love more and more now and always. Amen.